We are, uh, in, in this series, we're, we're having a conversation that's really drawn out of these readings from the book of Revelation. And uh, like last week, last week we talked about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and today we're going to talk about another, uh, another uh, component of the revelation that John had on the island of Patmos that has seeped out of the church and into popular culture. And l- let me give you an illustration of what I mean by something that has seeped out of the church and into popular culture. Um, I want to show you a picture of a highway sign. This is in New Mexico in 2003. Uh, it's on a road between Gallup and uh, the Four Corners area, and so it's in the northwest, extreme northwest part of the, the state. And it used to be called Route 666, and it got the nickname the Devil's Highway and the state found that they were replacing a lot of signs because people would come and steal them and take them back to their dorm room or whatever else they did with a 666 sign. So 666 kind of has this this popular culture um, a life of its own. It's kind of moved out of the church and the culture has tried to, to do something with it. And so the state had to change the highway. They talked to the federal government and now it's U.S. Highway 491 and the number of thefts has, has really dropped down because of that. So... Very few people want those in their dorm room. So, um, so that's an example of what I mean by, by pop culture. But, <clears throat> but what we believe is that this scripture actually speaks of a reality that, um, that, uh, the church will face either in whole or in part, um, as, as time goes on until Jesus returns. And the difference between this week's reading and last week's reading is this. Last week we talked about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and what we saw last week is that most of us are never going to face the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Most of us are never going to face that kind of violent, uh, overt coercion because of our faith. There are people in the world today who are, and and we talked about that last week, um, and there have been times through history where that's been more prevalent. But most of us, if if life in our country goes on the way, you know, the next 30 years goes on like the last 30 years, um, we're not going to face the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But we are already dealing with what John is talking about here when he talks about the number of the beast. We're already dealing with it. You're dealing with it in your daily life, and you will go on dealing with it for the foreseeable future. So that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about what is John getting at here. Now, unfortunately, again, uh, there are people who have already told you the answer, okay? And I don't think that they're really right because they, they tell you that the number of beasts is things like Bitcoin. I've got a picture here. Um, this is Bitcoin Cash on the on the front of the uh, bulletin. What is Bitcoin? I don't know. I don't understand it. It involves numbers, and it's really scary. So uh, Bitcoin may be the number of the beast. Or maybe they tell you it's about your employer putting an RFID chip in your hand. So I don't know if you can read that. It says there's a Wisconsin company, three square market, that's going to microchip its employees. Some of you nodding, you saw this article. Can you work for that company without getting a RFID chip in your hand? Good question. Is that the number of the beast? And then, and then I thought this was funny. Maybe you saw this. The Miami Heat this year, you can go buy a paper ticket, but you can't get into the arena without a cell phone so they can track you. So the Miami Heat becomes the first NBA team to switch to mobile-only ticketing. And if they're doing it, just imagine what the future holds for you. You know, Apple Pay, eat your heart out. Are those the number of the beast? No. You are dealing with them, but those are not what I think John is getting at here when he talks about the number of the beast. So what I want to do is I want to talk about what is the, the thing that John wants the church to be aware of? Why does he 
communicate this to us. And what John does, as we've seen over the last several weeks, is John uses symbols to talk about a hidden spiritual reality. Uh, the title for the whole series is, is The Big Reveal. A revelation is a peek behind the curtain. So John is using symbolic language to tell us what's really going on. And the problem is, the symbolic language he's using is symbols that people would have understood as they pointed at the Roman Empire. And if you're a scholar of the Roman Empire, you probably get them too. But most of us, you know, I heard there was a guy named Julius Caesar once, and that's about kind of our our knowledge of the, the Roman Empire. So we have to unpack the symbols before we can understand the message the symbols are designed to convey. So we're going to do that very quickly, talk about what, up, up, too far, go, go back, go back. That's, that's the secret. It's coming up. So, um, you can think it over and go down a wrong path. So, so, um, all right. So what we're going to do is we're going to unpack the symbolic language that re- refers to Rome, uh, in order to understand the big reveal, the, the big important message that John is getting at with his, um, revelation. So, um, uh, one more, one more kind of contextual note. Uh, as we heard before in the, in the first century, m- Many people would have been familiar with the vision we heard from from Daniel. The book of Daniel was very popular. It would have been known to every Jew in any audience, and it would have actually percolated out from there, kind of the way you know people today who don't read comic books still know who Superman is, right? It would have it would have kind of penetrated into the popular culture a little bit in in um, the first century, even outside the Jewish world. And what the book of Daniel talks about, particularly in chapter seven, is it talks about these four beasts, which Daniel interprets for his reader to mean four different empires. Four empires, one after another, the last one, the most frightening of them all. So that's kind of some some useful information to have in the background. That's how come one of his readers would have known instantly when he's talking about beasts, he's talking about empires. And in that era, the empire that people worried about was the Roman Empire. So, so here we go, uh, beginning at the very end of chapter 12, for John, the, this revelation is a seamless whole. Uh, the chapter divisions came later. So we pick things up at the very end of chapter 12. Uh, then the dragon took his stand on the shore beside the sea. Who is the dragon? Well, we'd have to drag, we'd have to pull in all of chapter 12 to get at that, but it is the devil. It is the devil. The Greek word diabolos means the slanderer, the one who slanders the people of God, who says untrue things about them. So that is the devil, or he's also given the name Hasatan, which is a Hebrew word, which means the accuser, the one who accuses the brothers. Okay, so that is the devil. The dragon is the devil. And he takes his stand on the shore beside the sea. And then John sees a beast rising up out of the sea. So this is, again, you've got the the book of Daniel in the background. So what is this beast? This is the beast. It's not one of four. This is the one that was so frightening to Daniel. This is the fourth beast. And it rises up out of the sea. If you think about people in the ancient world, if you're living in northern Africa, if you're living in Asia Minor or Greece, if you're living in the in the Middle East, where do Romans come from? Well, maybe once in a while an army comes to town and they went by land, but mostly the local the local uh, authorities are obeying instructions that come by ship. So the the beast, for practical purposes, comes to you wherever you live from the sea. So the first beast arises out of the sea, and it has seven horns and ten, seven heads and ten horns with ten crowns on its horns. 
and um, written on each head were names that blasphemed God. And the beast has this fantastic appearance, leopard, bear, um, lion. But the important thing is the beast is really a puppet. The beast isn't independent. The beast gets its authority from the dragon. It says the dragon gave the beast his own power and throne and great authority. Uh, Caesar may think he's all that, but we know that there is a malignant force behind Caesar. Okay, and I saw that one of the heads of the local uh, of, of the beast seemed wounded beyond recovery, but the fatal wound was healed. The whole world marveled at this miracle and gave allegiance to the beast. And scholars who have studied Rome more than I ever will, they've got all kinds of theories about what this means. The, the heads and the crowns are prob- and the horns are probably different emperors. And um, uh, there was a rumor at that time, Nero, Caesar Nero, had committed suicide and uh, set off a civil war as different people tried to become his successor. Um, so people suggest that maybe this is a reference to Caesar Nero uh, because there was also a rumor later on that he hadn't really died. He'd faked his own death or something like that, um, or that he was the divine Caesar Nero, that's what he said, and so maybe he couldn't die. So there were rumors about that, so maybe that's what they're getting at. But the important thing is that uh, the whole world worships him. They're, they find whatever it is he's, he's selling, they find it compelling, and they worship him. Who is as great as the beast? Who could ever go up against Rome? No one would dare go up against Rome. Who's able to fight against him? And then the beast was allowed to speak great blasphemies against God. He was given authority to do whatever he wanted for 42 months. 42 months is half of seven years. And remember, we've been seeing all through this book, seven is a seven is really a magic number. Seven means all you could possibly expect, right? It's everything. It's it's the most important number of all. So half of that really means yes, the beast is is unleashed. The beast is doing bad things, but not forever. He will be arrested midway through what he's trying to achieve. So yes, it's going to be bad, but it is not as bad as it could be, that there is a limit on the beast. He's allowed to do what he can for 42 months, half of what he needs. And he spoke terrible words of blasphemy against God, slandering his name and his dwelling, those who dwell in heaven. And the beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And he was given authority to rule over every tribe and people and language and nation. And the people who belong to this world worship this beast. They are the ones whose names were not written in the book of life that belongs to the Lamb, who was slaughtered before the world was made. And then the part we don't like, the part we don't want to hear, it says anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. God's going to permit this. God is going to let the beast blaspheme him, and he's going to let the beast persecute you. Anyone who is destined for prison will be taken to prison. Anyone destined to die by the sword will die by the sword. This means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently and remain faithful. We don't like that. We want to know why is that? Why, why, why does God do this? And this is the question we grappled with last week. Why does God permit this to take place? And John says, I'm not done yet. The book is only half over. We're getting there. But right now, there's no answer that will satisfy you. If you're, if, if you're, you or people you love are being persecuted, really, is there any answer that can persecute you? But the context reminds us first that God saw them being martyred. We saw back in chapter 6 and chapter 7 last week, God is aware of what people are going through, that God uh, saves those people, that they are rescued, they are with God in paradise, and come the resurrection, things will be perfect because God will heal every hurt. 
So there's that promise. But even before that, there's a further promise. Jesus says, I will go first and I will lead the way. God is not some remote God that sits up on a mountain and says, good luck with that. God comes down and leads the way. So we don't like it and we don't understand it. But John wants us to know what to expect. Anyone who's destined for prison will be taken to prison. Anyone who's destined to die by the sword will die by the sword. And then while we're still chewing over that and saying, I don't really like that image, John, he goes on. He says, then I saw another beast come up out of the earth. He has two horns like uh, those of a lamb, but he spoke with the voice of a dragon. He doesn't come from across the sea. He's locally sourced. He's the local law enforcement. He's the people who implement the policies that Caesar put into place back in Rome. He's the local guy. And what he's saying is, no, I'm not going to wink at it. You know, this is not Casablanca. And the gendarme is not going to say, you know, you and Rick, uh, we're going to have a beginning of a glorious relationship. He's saying, he's saying, no, I'm going to carry this out. To, in fact, I'm going to do more than carry it out to the limit. I'm going to go beyond that because I want to show how loyal I am. I, I really believe that Rome is all that. And I want to make sure everybody else does too. So I'm going to enforce what Rome proposes, I'm going to enforce that locally. It says, it says he has, he has uh, horns like a lamb, right? He doesn't look so bad. I mean, you know him. You see him around town. He doesn't look like a monster, but he speaks with the voice of the dragon. He exercised authority of the first beast, and he required all the earth and its people to worship the first beast. He says, you will absolutely say that Rome is the Lord. Caesar is your Lord and Rome is the boss. He did astounding miracles. And again, uh, scholars talk about what, what do these miracles mean? What did that actually look like in the Roman context? But the important thing is he deceived all the people who belonged to the world. This second beast is kind of the propaganda minister for the first beast. And he deceives people so that they worship the first beast. And if they don't, he requires everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on the right hand or on the forehead. No one could buy or sell anything without that mark, which is either the name of the beast or the number representing his name. He takes the ordinary social pressure. When you are not conforming with what your neighbors expect you should do, it's going to be hard for you. He takes that... And then he ratchets it up to a fatal level. He says, you cannot work. You cannot buy food. You live in a crowded city. There's no community garden. You're not going to grow your own vegetables. You cannot eat. You cannot buy anything. You cannot work without the number of the beast. If you have not bowed down, then you cannot work. And then he says, what is that number? Wisdom is needed here. Let the one with understanding solve the meaning of the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Now there's two theories, or two broad groups of theories about what this, what this number means. Um, the first one is something, it's either gematria or gematria. I don't know, I don't know how to pronounce it. But it, what it means is that these numbers have a symbolic meaning that the people in that era would have been familiar with. They, they would have uh, assigned numerical values to each letter of the alphabet. And then once you get the sum, you can work backwards to, to various answers. And so the one that most people like is the name Caesar Nero, that if you work these numbers right, you get Caesar Nero. 
And maybe that sounds like it's kind of far-fetched, but let me give you an example. Not quite the same thing, but similar. Suppose I show you three presidents and I, and I say 43. Let me show you. Who am I talking about? Let the one who has wisdom reckon the number of a bush. So it's, it's W, right? It's not H.W., it's not Bill Clinton, it's W. Some of us remember that there were two Bushes, and so we started saying 43, and then we even, for a while, I heard people talk about Obama as 44, so Trump would be 50, 45. So we have this context, a, a local context. A, a hundred or a thousand years from now, no one's going to remember 43 was Bush, right? Uh, which Bush 43 was. No one's going to remember. But in that context, people understood numerically what they were talking about. That's what scholars tell us. I don't know, I wasn't there. But that's one theory. The other theory, or group of theories, boils down to this. Seven is a magic number. And six tries so hard and fails. Six just doesn't have it. Six thinks it's all that, but it really isn't. So this is six, six again, six again. That the number of this beast is someone who has aspirations, but fails and fails and fails, who is not what he thinks he is. So those are the two broad categories of, of explanation. What is this number? So that's all very fascinating if you're fascinated by the Roman world. But we have to unpack all that to get to the point where we can actually begin to understand what these symbols mean for us. So the question is, what do they mean for us? I said that we're not going to face the four horsemen. Maybe you will. Maybe you will. But I don't think most of us are going to face the four horsemen, the, the, the political and military and economic forces of destruction, the overt violent destruction we saw last week. But you will face this. And let me illustrate how. I'm going to show you some pictures from the news. There's a, there's a story or there's a saying. When you go to, when you go to preacher school, they tell you that the way a preacher should write his sermons is with the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other. And the only problem with that is, if you live in Alaska, the newspaper goes bankrupt. But that's a whole separate story. <laughs> they're, they're working on that. They're going to try and solve that problem. But the other thing is, the news cycle is so huge today. If I started working on my sermon on Monday with the big news on Monday, by the time Sunday comes around, you're going to say, oh man, that's old news. That's, they've, that's like ancient history. Who cares about that? So there is a problem there. But I'm going to show you some news stories, and maybe you can remember some of these. So, cause they go back days in some cases. So, um, so here's some news stories. Um, let me ask you this. Should Google, not, not legally, but, but morally, ethically, should Google be allowed to fire somebody who writes a memo that questions the company's practices as it seeks to bring about a diverse workforce? Should Google be allowed to fire that person? Hold your answer. Let me ask you a different question. The next question is this. Is, if you're an NFL owner, should you be allowed to not hire Colin Kaepernick because of his political beliefs, the way he puts into practice what he believes? I know none of them do that. They've all said that they don't do that. It's all about the passing or whatever, right? But hypothetically, if you owned an NFL team, could you not hire Colin Kaepernick because of his political beliefs? Let me ask you another one. Suppose you're the Mozilla Foundation. You're the people who, who come up with the Firefox web browser. And 
you hire a guy who invented JavaScript, and I know none of you know what JavaScript is. I can't write JavaScript. It's too complicated for me. But basically, it's the single most important technology that makes the Internet work today, by far. And Brendan Eich invented JavaScript. And the Mozilla Foundation was looking for a CEO, and they hired him. But Brendan Eich supported Proposition 8. And after six days, he was out. Is that right? Let me ask you another one. Suppose you're a baker, and two gay men come to your store, and they say, we want you to bake a cake for our wedding. And you say, I can't do that. Should you be compelled by the state to do that? The Supreme Court's going to answer that sometime this fall. Let me ask you one more. Suppose you're the Islamic Center of Basking Ridge, New Jersey, and you say to the city of Basking Ridge, we want to build a mosque, and the city throws up one arbitrary hurdle after another, telling you your parking lot's not right. Is that right? Should you be able to do that? What all these stories have in common is they involve people who are thinking wrong thoughts. I don't mean wrong thoughts in the sense that there is some actual standard and these people are in error. Some are, some aren't. And my guess is if we polled all of you, we'd find that there's different different understandings of who's wrong and who's right. But our culture believes that wrong thinking leads to wrong actions. And I don't want to support people like that. I don't want people like that in my workforce. I don't want people like that in my community. I don't want people who think wrong thoughts in my community. So our culture responds by doing two things. We say, your problem is lack of education. And so I'm going to educate you. Or the way the Soviets put it, where I'm going to re-educate you. I'm going to indoctrinate you because you are clearly not thinking right. So that's one thing our culture does. The other thing our culture does is it says... Your thoughts are just forbidden. You need to quit thinking those thoughts. And if you do those things, if we educate you or re-educate you, and if we prohibit bad thinking, then you will be a good person. We'll all have peace and harmony. Now, there's a problem with that, which is that whose thoughts are privileged? Who gets to decide which ones are right and wrong? So there, there's, a, there's a problem there, and it's going to lead to strife. The kind of strife, honestly, we saw yesterday in Virginia. People arguing, whose thoughts are right? You know, I have my opinion, you probably have yours. But who's right? See, Christianity doesn't respond with that. Christianity doesn't say, the problem is your thoughts. The, Christianity says, the problem is, you are dead. But God, who is rich in mercy, has made you alive in Christ for good works. Christianity says there's nothing you can do. There's no way we can prohibit enough bad thinking or educate enough good thinking to make you a good person. You will never be a good person on your own, no matter what we do to you. No matter whether we fire you or prohibit you from working here or take you to court or throw up roadblocks, Christianity says you are dead without Christ. But in Christ, you are alive, made new for new, for good works. 
The number of the beast is that subtle, everyday, coercive effort to make you behave. In 1957, a woman named Rosa Park, you know this story, she was riding on a bus. And in her town, there was a coercive rule that said, by city ordinance, black people could not sit in the front part of the bus. She said, I'm not moving. So they arrested her, took her to jail. And what came out of that was the Montgomery bus boycott, and it took months. But people said, if I can't ride on that bus because of a restrictive law, it says I cannot ride on that bus the same as anybody else can ride on that bus, then I won't ride on that bus. So they walked. Sometimes they carpooled, but a lot of them walked. That is the number of the beast. The number of the beast says, I'm going to use coercive means to make you behave. And what Christians are called to do is not to fight, not to ram our cars into people, but to say, I'm not going along. And sometimes that will have a happy ending. Sometimes the bus company will cave. The city will say, we're losing too much money. We're going to change the ordinance. And sometimes it won't. Sometimes those who are destined for prison will go to prison. Sometimes those who are destined to die by the sword will die by the sword. But Christianity says you cannot make people think good thoughts. All you can do is be reborn. Jesus never told us to be prosecutors. He told us to be witnesses. He certainly never told us to be inquisitors. He said, be my witnesses. Christianity is not good advice. It's good news. It's the good news that there is a God who knows how broken we are, who knows how messed up our world is because of it, and who, with his own wisdom, is solving it in a way we wouldn't think of. Jesus didn't call us to prosecute anybody. He called us to love them. He called us to love gay people who come to your store and say they want to get married and they want to cake. He called us to love bakers who say, no, I won't. He called us to love... And remember the examples. He called us to love people who challenge women in the workforce. He called us to love people who build a politically correct uh, uh, environment with its, uh, that you can only see as an echo chamber. Jesus calls us to love uh, football players who won't kneel for the um, who, who who do kneel during the uh, Star Spangled Banner. He calls us to love Donald Trump. He calls us to love Kim Jong Un. There's nobody on this planet that we're not called to love because there's a deeper hidden reality. There is a dragon behind the beast. The way Paul put it, he said, our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but with the spiritual forces, the unseen spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. And the reason for that was not so you'd become a conspiracy theorist and start seeing the devil behind every bush, but so you could realize sometimes the beast, maybe not the first beast or the second beast, but the third or fourth or fifth beast, thinks it's doing the right thing. 
It thinks that the world will be a better place if you just change the way you think. So Jesus calls us to love them, to love everybody, everybody on this planet. And if there's somebody in that list, Kim Jong-un, Donald Trump, Colin Kaepernick, James Damore, I can't remember them all. If you can't, if there's somebody in that list that you have trouble loving, imagine how your neighbor looks at you and says, I don't understand those neighbors. Those Christians, they love Muslims. Muslims blow people up and they love them anyway. They love Colin Kaepernick. He's no patriot. They love homophobes. They love people who, who are building a politically correct culture. They love them all. And so your neighbors are not going to understand you. Your neighbors will probably wind up cooperating with the beast. They will bow down. And Jesus calls us to love them anyway. If we say, that sounds hard, he says, well, I know. But I'll go first. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this revelation that reminds us that that our struggle is not with flesh and blood but with the spiritual forces in the unseen places. We thank you for the reminder that we do have an adversary. But it is not the people who make our lives hard. Lord, we thank you that you know what's wrong with us. And the solution is not education or re-education, but a new heart. Lord, we thank you for the example of people like Rosa Parks, people who faced down the state, people who did without because you do not call us to make war. You call us to accept with patience the persecution that comes our way. And so, Lord, we pray when that day comes, when we are faced with something that you forbid, that you would give us the courage to follow in that great cloud of witnesses that has gone before us, being like Jesus to a world that is not yet fully redeemed. We pray it in his name. Amen.